My name is Steve. I'm the lead pastor. And uh, I want to welcome you this morning to Trailhead. Uh, we've got a lot of family and guests. It's awesome. Glad you guys are here. Uh, last week, Aaron um, said that he was finishing up the book of James. I just want to let you know he lied to you. Aaron, you're a liar. Um, psych, not really. He, he just left the last two verses unpreached, and I could not leave those two verses. Um, they are the perfect period on the end of the sentence. So we're going to James this morning. Uh, so grab your Bibles. Let's go over to James chapter 5. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, grab one off the chairs around you. And in our Bibles, we're going over to page 1013. Um, this has been an incredible journey, um, working our way through the book of James. I honestly, truly, truly have enjoyed studying it um, and preaching it. Um, when, I, when I felt led to preach through the book of James, um, it was a book I was very familiar with and thought I knew what I was getting into and, and be familiar territory. And honestly, this book surprised me um, and uh, rattled me and, and uh, encouraged me, and I hope it did the same for you. Um, I hope the study book was a blessing to you, the James study book that we put together. It was designed to, to help you get into the Scripture before the sermon, to engage in the sermon, and then uh, and, and move into community after the sermon with, with what you're learning and what God is showing you. Um, we're going to continue to use those books to improve them and, and seek to make that a central part of our uh, really just helping you grow in the joy of your salvation and knowing in your relationship with God. Um, want to let you know if if you came in the middle of the service or even if this morning's your your first time and and you missed the whole James series. If you're interested, we have extra study books and and we have them at Connection Point, which is the table in the lobby. Just swing by, we'll give it to you. Um, you can go back. You can listen to all the previous sermons. They are on the website. They are on iTunes. And uh, if you want to go back and engage this material and, and study through the book of James, that material is there for you. The book is, is yours. Just swing by and grab that. Um, it would be our joy to see it used. Next week, we're going to be starting a new sermon series through the book of Proverbs. That's going to be our summer series. Proverbs is a collection of wisdom literature. If you read through it, um, it's not going to read like a lot of other passages in Scripture. Right? It doesn't read like stories. It doesn't read like a big argument. It's just a series of wise sayings, which throws some people off because they're like, I don't see where this started and where it's ending. It doesn't. It's just a lot of wisdom. Okay? Uh, we don't have a study book for this series. We decided not to do that for the summer, but, but here's what I'm going to ask you to do. We do want you engaged in the Scripture at other times besides just Sunday morning. And so there's 31 chapters in the book of Proverbs. There's 31 days in the month of July. Uh, and you're like, well, we're in the middle and we already started July. Yep, you get to read a couple. You do two chapters, catch up. But, but here's the thing, man, what a great opportunity. Get up in the morning, grab a cup of coffee, grab a journal, sit down with the book of Proverbs, and just read a chapter, right? And, and whatever Proverbs stands out to you, challenges you, encourages you, confuses you, journal about it, right? Write about it, and then write out a prayer in response to it. Um, if you do that, I guarantee you'll be encouraged. You'll be strengthened in your faith, and, and you'll get a lot out of our study through the book of, of Proverbs. So we're starting that next week. Uh, I encourage you to engage um, with that. This morning, we're going to be looking at James's final admonition to us as believers. This has been a book of admonitions, a book of, of commands, man. Here's your faith. This is what you do with it. This is, here's your faith. This is how you live it out. Here's your faith, and this is how it's going to challenge you this morning. Um, man, it's a powerful call to love. So let's take a look at James chapter 5. I'm going to read verses 19 and 20. You can follow along um, as I read out loud. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, 
Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, you guys, um, if anyone wanders, if anyone wanders, um, here's the thing with wandering. Um, I like to wander. How about you? I mean, it just sounds kind of awesome. I don't have a lot of time for wandering these days or a lot of freedom for it, but I, I love to wander. Um, it sounds magical, right? There's something, something wonderful just around the corner, so just go wandering to it. It reminds me a little bit of, of my time in Yosemite. Yosemite is a, a national park out in California. I uh, went to it as a child growing up in California. I've gone back to it numerous times. Literally one of the most beautiful places on the face of the earth. I'm not exaggerating. Um, you come into this incredible valley that is green and, and lush, and it's on each side are these granite walls rising up thousands of feet. And, and there's waterfalls flowing into the valley, feeding this river that flows through the center of it. There are bears, and, and there are deer, and, and there are all kinds of wildlife. And, and, and literally, I mean, it just feels otherworldly. It is, it is humbling. It is awe-inspiring. It is, I love being there. I love wandering there. It just invites you to wander, right? When you're there, you can drive through the valley and, and see it, but, but it just feels wrong right? That, that is a place that invites you out uh, to hike and to climb, and, and, and I've done that. We've, we've hiked um, all over the place, and when you're hiking on those trails, there are signs all over the place that say, stay on the trail, right? And I'm like, yeah, whatever, right? I know the good stuff's out there, right? I know there's good stuff on the trail, but there's better stuff out there, right? And every single year, every single year, hundreds of people wander off the trails um, for a lot of reasons, right? Sometimes the trails are crowded. There's a lot of people that go to Yosemite, and so you're on this trail, and it seems like there's a lot of people around, and all of a sudden you see another trail branch off that looks like, oh, that's the trail less traveled by. Well, I want to do that, right? Frost told me to, so I'm going to go travel the, the, the trail less traveled, and, and what you don't know is that that's not a person trail. It has nothing to do with people. That was an animal trail, and it, it's going to dissipate, and you're going to be lost, right? But people do that, right? People will be hiking along, and it'll, it'll get late because you climb super high, and, and you get all excited, and then when you're coming down, you're like, oh, it's getting dark, and you're like, man, I got all these switchbacks. If I just cut through this trail, I'll be able to cut off switchbacks, save some time. Uh, uh, other people were walking along, and they'll see like this glade, this open area out in the middle of the woods that seems just full of light and full of magic, and I need to go there because somehow that's going to be life transformative, right? I need to be in that glade. And so people will wander off the trail to, to go just experience the sunlight and the flowers and, and the smells and the, and the beauty. And what ends up happening is, is in all the beauty, people forget the danger, right? And this happens every, every year. In March 2015, a guy named Kevin Bake, who was a 22-year-old hiker, young, uh, um, athletic, uh, out with his friends, had a great time. They climbed to the top of Yosemite Falls, which is a hike that I've done. It is extremely strenuous all the way to the top, 96 switchbacks all the way to the top. Uh, it is ridiculous, but it is beautiful. And, and they were up there too long, and they were starting to come down, and it was starting to get a little dark. And, and he looked down, and he saw a path that just cut off several switchbacks. It went down through a ravine, and, and, and he's like, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through there. And he and his friends went down that path. And, and before long, um, the friends got separated because it got very steep very quickly. They started sliding a little bit. They got separated in the trees, um, but it's getting darker, and pretty soon, man, you, there's always this point of no return. You never know when you're passing it, but you know when you've passed it, right? There comes a point where you're like, I can't go back up, uh, so I just need to keep going down, um, and, and, and he comes out of the trees, and suddenly he finds himself uh, on a two-foot granite ledge looking down at a 350-foot drop, 
and he can't go back up. And it's twilight. And he spends the entire night on that ledge, clinging to a tree, literally inches from his death. He has no idea if his friends know where he is. He doesn't know what happened to his friends. Now, the end result, and the reason I'm telling you this story, you can go look on YouTube, and you can actually see his dramatic rescue. They actually had to bring in a helicopter and drop a guy, put a harness on him, and lifted him out. Um, and uh, it was very dramatic, very cool, and I'm sure it came with a very hefty price tag for him later. Um, but but he, it is a good story. And here's the thing. There, there are people all the time that don't have that happy ending. They fall in a river. They get trapped under a log. They're gone. They fall off a ledge. It takes them weeks to find the body. I mean, the, it is a beautiful, beautiful place. It is a very, very dangerous place to wander. And here's the thing with wandering. It never seems dangerous until it is. Wandering never seems dangerous until it is. And by the time you realize it is, you're almost always past the point of no return. You're already in extreme danger by the time you wake up to the danger. And, and here's the thing, yes, if this is dangerous in Yosemite, how much more dangerous is it when we're wandering from the truth? Something that doesn't just put our bodies in danger, it puts our souls in danger. The, the Greek word for wander doesn't just mean to physically wander. It, it can also be translated to be deceived or to be seduced. And what that means is spiritual wandering occurs when an external lie lines up with an internal desire. There's an external lie that I may or may not know it's a lie, but it lines up with an internal desire, and I want it. And so it is both deception and self-deception. It is both that looks appealing, that looks like a path to, to beauty, a path to success, a path to vitality, a path to, to all the goodness I don't have right now. That looks like the path, and it lines up with an inner desire to get there in my own way, on my own time, on my own terms. I'm deceived. I want to take this shortcut to happiness or success or comfort or fulfillment, but I'm also seduced. Because there is an internal desire, and we all have it. We've talked about this throughout the book of James. We all have this internal desire called worldliness. Worldliness is my desire to get the fullness of life apart from the presence of the God who gives it. Worldliness is my desire to get, to get the thriving fullness of life apart from the God who is the source of life. I want to get that thriving fullness of life on my terms, in my way, on my time. I want to be like God. I want the shalom, the fullness, the peace, the flourishing of life. But I don't want to have to walk in humble dependence to get there. I don't want to have to rely on grace. I, I want to get there on my own, right? And so there's an internal desire. Um, and here's the thing. The first few steps off the path never really seem that dangerous, right? It's kind of full of adventure a little bit. Like, ooh, look at me, risk taker, right? This is fun, I'm a few feet off the path, and, and, and there's always like a curve in the path. And, 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 and there's this, you're just convinced something wonderful is right on the other side. Right? Or maybe you're just curious. I wonder what's over there. You ever done that? Like you just walk down, it's like, I wonder what, I'll go a little bit further. I'll go a little bit further, right? Because it's just around the corner. I just want to see what's around the corner, right? The first few steps off the path never really seem that dangerous. And that's the nature of being deceived, isn't it? You don't even notice. You don't even notice. It feels so right. How could it be wrong? What James is telling us is this is the exact reason we so desperately need each other. We're on a journey together. 
And we all have an inclination to wander. All of us. We'll do it in our own ways, but we all have an inclination. We desperately need each other. James says, if anyone wanders from the truth, if anyone wanders from the truth, someone, someone bring him back. See, when we wander from the truth, it's not just our bodies that are exposed to danger on some high ledge. It is our souls. Our souls are exposed because we are separated from the God of life, the God who provides protection, the God who is the source of all the things we're actually pursuing. We are isolated from God. We're deceived in our, in our shame. We are uh, trapped by our pride, and we are vulnerable to attack because we have an enemy. And that enemy loves isolated Christians, loves isolated believers, loves, loves it when we're cut off from, from community because then he can just, man, entrap us in those lies, keep us exposed, and ultimately seek to destroy us. And James is saying, man, we're, you guys, we're on this journey together, right? We're on this hike together. This is our thing, man. We've got we to gotta keep an eye on each other. We've got to keep an eye on each other. If anyone, if any one of you wanders, somebody, for love's sake, bring him back. That's what James is saying. But how do you do this? You know, it's, it's one thing when it's in Yosemite and it's like, okay, my friend wandered and I think he went to this general area and I think we can probably find him or his body <laughs> uh, over here. When someone's wandering from the truth, how do you do that? How do you bring them back? Um, well, I think there is a way, but first I want to talk to you about what I think it doesn't mean, right? Um, and here's the challenge. I think this is often how it is done. Um, you don't bring someone back to the truth by being a sin inspector. You know what I'm saying? Like sin inspectors are roaming around looking for whom they may rebuke, right? Are you living up? Are you, I heard a rumor. I wonder if you, they're constantly looking around trying to figure out where somebody's not living up to the, what they should be living up to, not doing what they're supposed to be doing, not, 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 Living it out for real, not, you know. Um, the challenge with this, and this is often how the passage is used, um, it, it, it's dangerous, you guys. When, when you see someone taking a path that you think is dangerous, taking a path you find offensive, taking a path that you can biblically justify and say, look, that is, that is sinful, right? Whether this path, when, we, when we're sin inspectors, the solution is to basically write a ticket, right? I'm the sin inspector, and you don't measure up, so I'm here to rebuke you, right? So, so it's like swooping in, and, and I'm going to rebuke this sin. I'm going to rebuke this path. I'm going to rebuke these choices, and I, I'm probably not going to be received real well, but hey, at least I did my part. At least I lived up to my obligation. I showed up, and I spoke truth, and, and that's what James is calling me to do, Show up and speak truth. It's not my responsibility for how you receive it. It's simply my responsibility to speak it. Um, I've seen Christians do this in ways that are incredibly damaging. Horrible. They use tools like fear and guilt and shame to try to rebuke people from making what they perceive as self-destructive sinful choices. They show up, and, 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 and don't you know where this is going to lead you? Don't you know what this is going to do to your mother? Don't you know what this is going to happen in the community? You should do better. Don't you know that Jesus died for your sins? How can you still walk in it? Don't you know you, you have an obligation to him? You should. You should. You should. Fear. Guilt. Shame. So this just doesn't work, y'all, right? Can we just admit it? It doesn't work. You know why? 
Uh, first of all, just think logically. Depending on where they are on the trail, you're going to hit them at different points. If, you, if they're at the beginning of their wandering, that means they're full of pride. They don't have anything to be afraid of yet. Everything's still wonderful. Right? They don't feel guilt about it because it's still all the promises ahead, right? It's all this, right? They don't, they don't feel shame. They don't have nothing to be ashamed about, right? If they're already on the ledge, if they've gone past the point of no return and they're feeling exposed and vulnerable and you show up and you try to fear them, they're already afraid. You try to guilt them, they're probably already overwhelmed with guilt. You try to shame them, they're already overwhelmed with shame. So what does it cause them to do? Pull back, withdraw, hide. If you're a sin inspector, people will start avoiding you. You're not a source of life to them. You're a source of death. We don't need sin inspectors, people that are going to show up and just rebuke us when everything's not going well, point out all of our flaws, always coming with a magnifying glass, trying to find out where we're not living up. Um, even Even if, even if your rebuke leads them to change their behavior, what truth are you restoring them to? It's not the truth of grace. If through fear, guilt, and shame, you get them to change their behavior, you're simply leading them down a path of morality, what we call moralism. That's not, that's not a restoration to grace. That is not a restoration to love. That is not a restoration to the heart of, of experiencing and being undone by the love of God and being remade in the image of Christ. That is, that is the path of self-improvement. That is the path of religious self-effort, and it is a path of death. You guys, I don't need someone to inspect my sin. I am all too aware of my sin. I don't need people showing up with magnifying glasses. I, I need someone who's going to invite me back to grace. I don't need someone showing up magnifying my flaws. I need someone showing up and magnifying the beauty of grace. That's what I need. I don't need an accountability partner. There's a place for accountability, and there's a place for accountability partners, but the danger with accountability partners is often they just show up, and they're, they're sin inspectors. So how'd you do this week? How many times? How do you feel about it? Do you feel horrible? Good. I'll talk to you next week. Now, that's encouraging. Thanks. I'll try to avoid you. Um, because I don't need an accountability partner. I need a true friend who loves me. Sin inspectors are always looking at my behavior. A true friend is looking at my heart. A sin inspector speaks to fix me. I try to adjust my moral compass. A friend speaks to call me back to love. Sin inspectors, whether they like to admit it or not, are subtly driven by pride and they feel superior to the people they're fixing. It's like the story Jesus told about the Pharisee who came to the temple to pray and he looked over and saw the tax collector on his face undone and, 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 and couldn't even lift his eyes to heaven. And, and, the, tax, and, and the Pharisee is like, full of pity for him and feel full of a little bit like, well, at least I'm, you know, and his prayer is, thank you, God, that I'm not like that. And Jesus did not have kind words about that Pharisee. A spiritual friend sees me in all of my foolishness, in all of my neediness, 
He sees the potential glory and he sees the potential ruin. He sees the beauty and he sees the ugliness. And he loves me. And that makes all the difference. So how do we do this? How do we be good friends? How do we, how do we bring someone back to the truth? How do we do it? Well, not through fear and guilt and shame. That's not how God works with us. You don't call someone to grace by covering them with fear, guilt, and shame. You call them to grace with grace. You call people to be undone by love, by speaking to them in love. You point them back to the good news of God's love in the gospel, the blessing that that Christ has earned for us. And the goal isn't to fix their behavior. That's not the goal. The goal is to engage their heart with the life-changing truth of the love of God. That'll change their behavior but in ways that are profoundly transformative and simply, instead of simply uh, moralism and, and self-improvement. Listen, you guys, nobody wanders into sinful behavior who hasn't first wandered from an experience of God's love. Nobody wanders into sinful behavior if they have not first wandered from a personal experience of God's love. You guys, we grow cold. We forget. We are deceived and we are seduced by the promises of independence, of quick pleasure, of pride, of hiding our shame. And in the end, we grow cold to the love of God. Now, the funny thing about this is what I'm describing is true of both the person who has walked away by engaging sinful behavior as well as the sin inspector who's trying to fix them. One wandered away into self-indulgence while the other wandered away into moral self-improvement. One is trying to find the fullness of the life of God apart from God by indulging in all of the good things over here that he knows God has forbidden or, or at least in ways God has not allowed. The other person knows over here trying to get into the fullness uh, of the life of God by making themselves morally good and, and respectable and being a good person and going to church on time and just doing all the right things so that they can be the right thing. They're both worldly. They're both seeking the fullness of life apart from the God who gives it, and they're trying to do it, whether it is through sinful self-indulgence or through moral self-improvement. Neither one of those is the path of humble dependency on the grace of God. Neither one of those is the path of absolute brokenness of confidence in self and absolute reliance on the sufficiency of Christ. Neither one of those is the path that says, I have nothing to prove and nothing to offer. Thank God for grace. Both are worldly. And you guys, we are called to be good friends to both. Some of us are inclined to wander one direction and others are inclined to wander the other. Some of us wander toward moralism and self-improvement seeking to identify or find our security and our perfectionism and our moral ability to 
withhold our desires and do the right things. Others of us are trying to find the fullness of God by, by breaking all the rules because we're subtly, quietly convinced that all the good things are on the other side of the fence and that God built the fences because he's a cosmic killjoy. And if I can just get over there, it's going to be awesome. We are called to be good friends to both, to bring them back. And we bring them back by, by man, that's just so much more than just pointing out somebody's sin. That doesn't bring them back. You know what brings them back? An invitation to love. That's what brings them back. An invitation to love because we all deeply, powerfully desire to be loved. So I want to give you three simple ways to do this. First, remind them whose they are. There is nothing that humbles our pride and nothing that comforts our shame more powerfully than understanding that the God of the universe paid the supreme price to claim me. That humbles my pride and it lifts up my shame. I needed God so much. I needed a Savior so much Jesus had to die. But I am so loved God gladly gave his son to die in my place. I am his. I am Christ's. Whose am I? I am Christ's because he paid the price for me. He loved me that much. Right? God sent Jesus to be my savior. God sent Jesus to be the hero of my story. God sent Jesus to be my substitute in judgment so that I could take his place in blessing. I am his and there is something radically disarming about that radical message of love. But when I am tempted to be filled with the foolishness of my pride and deceived in my own strength and my own capacity to find life apart from God, I am humbled by that kind of love. And when I am covered in the shame of my failure, standing on the precipice of my own self-destruction because of my own foolish choices, I am comforted in that shame. Because God loves me, not my potential me, not my best me, not me on my best day. Me, in all of my brokenness, and all of my potential glory, He loves me. I am His. Remind them whose they are. And then remind them who they are. Remind them who they are. Because I am loved by God. My identity who I think I am, what I know about myself is founded on whose I am, right? Because I am His. I am a child of God. I've been adopted into God's family, not because I was good enough, not because I merited it, not because I, I improved myself enough. I am invited to the table of God's grace, not because I've cleaned myself up, but because He's done it for me, and I am continually invited back to the table. Who am I? What if, what if the first thought that went through your mind every single time you thought of yourself, what if the most foundational thing you knew about yourself was this? You are loved by God. The God of the universe, the sovereign, all-powerful, holy God of the universe delights in me. Not my potential me, not me on my best day, me. And he has committed himself to removing my shame and establishing my glory, delivering me from all of my foolishness and brokenness into the fullness of His blessing. Who am I? I am loved by God. Remind them who they are. It will help dispel the deceit of worldly ambition. 
trying to find your identity in your job or your success, trying to find your identity in your wealth or your platform, trying to find your identity in, in, in people's approval or love of you, trying to find your identity in your religious performance and moral self-improvement instead of trying to find your identity in how well you do. You find your identity in the fact that it doesn't matter. You are loved. And because you are loved, you are free. And because you are free, you can become everything God has created you to be. Not to prove yourself, not to to establish yourself, not to become something that eventually will be worthwhile, but because you already are. And you are ridiculously loved. Who are you? You are the beloved of God. He delights in you because when he looks at you, he sees Christ. You are covered in the righteousness of Christ. You are a son of God. You are a daughter of God. You are a co-heir with Christ. And when Jesus looked at his son, he said, Behold, my son, in whom all of my delight rests. And when he looks at you, he says, Behold, I see you, my son. Behold, I see you, my daughter. And all my delight rests in you because you are in Christ. Thirdly, remind them what's been promised. Remind them what's been promised to them in the gospel. Everything they have in Christ. Remind them that they are citizens of God's kingdom first, not of this world. That their primary identity isn't isn't found in the security of of, of success or failure in this world, of of affluence or poverty. Their primary identity is not found in, 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 in what people think of them or what people say of them. Their primary identity and blessing is not found here. Your primary blessing is found there. You are a citizen of the kingdom of God and that kingdom is already breaking in and it's coming into its fullness and you will find your fullest blessing and the fullest revelation of the kingdom of God. Your greatest blessing is yet to come. Remind them your greatest blessing is yet to come. Your best days aren't behind you. Your greatest blessing isn't behind you. It is ahead of you. And you have a God who is taking you there and he is working in all of your suffering and in all of your earthly blessing to more form you into the image of his son. He is bringing you into that blessing. There will be no suffering in this life that is not redeemed. And there will be no prosperity in this life that will not be overshadowed. Your greatest blessings yet to come. You've been blessed with all things in Christ. Not because you earned them. Not because you're good enough. Grace. 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 God's undeserved, unmerited favor. God has favored you. Because you have have trusted in the work of Christ, you are covered in the righteousness of Christ, and you are co-heirs with Christ. Don't live for the pleasures of this world. Don't live for the religious attainment of this world. Don't live for the praise of men in this world. What an empty and foolish endeavor. Remind them remind them. You guys listen to me. I need friends like this. I absolutely need friends like this. You're like, Steve, you're a pastor, man. You're like, you're like the one that's doing it for everybody else, right? Not a chance. Not a chance. Um, I'm being absolutely brutally honest. If I didn't have friends like this, I wouldn't be standing here right now. If I didn't have friends like this, I'd destroy myself. 
I would pursue the wrong glory. I would chase after the wrong goal. I would comfort myself and self-medicate myself in inappropriate ways, trying to numb the pain and escape the pressure. I need friends like this. And praise God, I've had the opportunity to be a friend like this at moments and at times in people's lives. See, James isn't talking about, when, when we read this passage, I think a lot of times we think about this like, like, man, there are those times when people, man, they just get themselves in a bad spot and we need some Christian to step up and be super heroic and have that hard conversation with them. <laughs> now, James is describing something that should be a regular occurrence in our lives. We should have friends like this, and we should be friends like this. What he is describing is the heart of Christian community. This is what it means to be the church and not just go to church. This is what it means to be a community, the body of Christ, moving forward in the discovery and the experience of the grace of God. It means calling one another out, not to be sin inspectors, but to be grace experiencers. To ask people questions, not just inspect their lives. How are you doing? How's your heart? Where are you with God? Not not to inspect it and say, well, you probably should work on that. Yeah, maybe a few more devotions will fix you. Try that, right? But to speak life. Here's the thing. If you come in humility and you're motivated by love, you tend to disarm people's pride and their shame. When you come to me, and you're coming to me in humility, and I know you're motivated by love, and you ask me how I'm doing, I am much more likely to give you an honest answer. Whether it's to expose my pride or to invite you into my shame. When you come to love me and not fix me, we're going to find life together. Listen, if you want to bring people back to the truth of grace, you have to do it with grace. There's only one way to win people back to the truth. (laughs) Because when James speaks about the truth, he's speaking about grace. There's only one way to win people back to the truth, and that is with truth, with grace, with love. So it doesn't mean it's not going to be hard at times. This is going to be hard, y'all. It's hard to be loved like this. These kind of friends are challenging. These kind of friends are hard because they don't allow it to just stay on the surface. Right? I love these friends. I'm thankful for these friends. And sometimes they annoy the snot out of me because, because I'll just be like cruising along, especially when, if I'm at the beginning stages of wandering. I don't want to be inspected. You know, it's still good. There's a problem. This is awesome. And then they start asking questions. And I'm like, uh-oh, I think I know where this is going. Right? But I love them and I trust them. And I've come to realize how deeply, deeply dependent I am on them. And so when they ask those questions, I answer. And if I'm on the other side and I'm covered in shame, those are often the friends I run to first. Because they're the ones that will speak life into me. I need these friends. But it's hard. It's hard to be loved like this. And honestly, it's hard to love like this because it means sometimes... 
Um, I, I have to have hard conversations. It means sometimes I have to initiate things that are hard to initiate. Sometimes it means I'm not going to allow it to float on the surface between us because I love you too much to allow it to float on the surface between us. I know there are things happening in your heart that are going, that are going to lead you to pain. And I love you too much to let that happen. I, I am going to initiate hard conversations. I'm going to ask questions. I'm not going to, again, not being a sin inspector. Like, hey, did you stumble this week? Right? No, like, dude, tell me about your walk with God. Are you vibrant? Are you experiencing the joy of the Spirit right now? No? Tell me more about that. Why? And, and what's going to end up happening is you allow people to talk, you're going to uncover the lies they're believing that are blocking them from the truth they desperately need. I just, I just, I don't feel worthy, or I'm just angry and resentful because I feel like this, or I'm just, right? And, and, and it allows you to unpack it and, and speak the truth of grace into their hearts. There are times when even when you are rooted in humility and motivated by love, you're going to be perceived as an enemy by your friend. Because if they are determined to walk down that path and they think the fullness of life is right around that corner and you're standing on the path between them and it, they may get angry at you. They may judge you. They may say mean things about you. They may reject you. But let me ask you something. If you love them, is there any other choice? If you really love them, is there any other choice? I would rather be rejected by someone I love fighting to love them well than to just let them go and pretend like I'm their friend. You've got to love people well. I have had people come back to me sometimes years later and say, Steve, I don't know if you remember this, but we had a conversation and I didn't treat you well and I was really upset with you because you were telling me things I didn't want to hear. You were the only person telling me those things. But the words you spoke stayed with me. They have rattled around in my head and they have rattled around in my heart and I want you to know you were a true friend to me. That is one of the most humbling and life-giving experiences. To know that the Spirit of God used my feeble attempt to actually bring genuine life change. And I've had those same conversations with others where I've looked at them and I said, I am so incredibly thankful you were faithful to me. I wasn't the best friend to you. I was not receptive to you. I wasn't vulnerable with you, but you loved me well. And I want to thank you. There are times... You guys, it's worth fighting for. There are two benefits in verse 20. I'm going to wrap up with this. Two benefits that come from being this kind of friend and, 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 um, and, and looking for this kind of friend, inviting them in. In verse 20, it says this. Let him who know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death, that's the first one, and will cover a multitude of sins. Remember, worldliness. Worldliness is our belief that we can get life apart from the God who gives life, that I can get the fullness of life apart from the God who is the source of life, right? I can do life on my terms, in my way, independent. I have, I have what it takes. I can, I can figure it out, right? Worldliness is a lie because there is no life apart from God. There is no life, there's no fullness of life apart from the presence of God who gives the fullness of life. He's the one that created all this good stuff, right? And he's not a cosmic killjoy. He didn't create it to taunt you with it. He created it so that you could delight in it because when you delight in the good things he created, you, create, you delight in the God of goodness, right? He, he wants you to have the fullness of life. He wants you to have joy. He wants you to, to, to experience the vibrancy of having purpose and significance and love. 
Worldliness comes in and says, no, 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 you don't need that. You don't need God. You can be like God. You don't need to be dependent on God. You can be independent from God. Here's the path. Moral self-improvement, uh, personal self-indulgence, whatever it is, it is, a, it is a lie. And that lie, listen to me, wandering from the truth can go a thousand different directions. But it only has one destination. Death. Because there is no other destination outside of God. It is worth the risk to save someone you love from experiencing death. Separation from the fullness, the vibrancy, the saving proficiency of God. It also covers a multitude of sins. Now, James doesn't say whose sins are being covered. Most commentators would say that it is the individual who wandered from God. When you bring them back, the, their multitude of sins are covered, um, and, and uh, that is true, right? There, there's something true to that. But here's the thing. James doesn't say whose sins are covered, and I think that's on purpose because I think it's broader than just the person who wandered from the faith. You guys, this is the final thought of the letter, and it's a powerful one. When we act in love, to bring someone back into an experience of love, a multitude of sins is covered. Grace flows freely for them and for me. You can't help renew someone's experience of grace without renewing your own experience of grace. You can't point someone back to God's love without renewing your experience of God's love. You can't remind someone of how incredible God's mercy is without yourself once again being amazed by God's mercy. When you seek to bring someone back into the blessing of grace, you renew your own experience of the blessing of grace. A multitude of sins is covered. They are blessed. We are blessed. The entire community is blessed as we become a community of people fighting to learn how to stumble forward in grace. Not trying to be sin inspectors challenging each other to better self-improvement projects, but, but a vibrant community of people determined to be undone by grace and remade in love. A community that seeks not to walk in independence and isolation, but in community. Seeking to invite God-honoring vulnerability even as we offer it to others. James is not describing an isolated heroic activity. He is describing how we as the church should be speaking life into each other daily. And if it's one thing I've learned over the last 10 years, I need it daily. I don't need a hotline to a friend that I just use once a month. I wander all the time. I need it daily. And I need to do it daily. That's the only way we can, as individuals, thrive. In our experience of grace, it is the only way that we can become a thriving community of grace in our community. A bright light on a hill, a shining beacon pointing people to the beauty of Christ and not simply the moral improvement of religion. It's a good spot for James to end. And it's a good spot for us to begin. I'm going to close this in a word of prayer. 
And uh, we're going to move into a time of response. And we're going to share communion together. Let me pray for us first. Father, I thank you. I thank you for this incredible letter written thousands of years ago written to first century Jewish believers scattered by persecution, away from their home, awaiting their true home, believers living between two kingdoms, between the tension of here and there. And man, I thank you that this letter is incredibly relevant to us today as well. That we're not simply studying a dead historical document, we are studying the very word of God, your word, not only to them, but to us. And I thank you, Lord, that it challenges us right where we are. It encourages us right where we are. It invites us to grace right where we are. And I pray this morning, Lord, you would give us hearts that are responsive. Those of us who are trying to pull back and self-protect and pride. Those of us who are hidden to move into, sh- into hiding because of our shame. Spirit, will you make the invitation of grace so blaringly loud that it drowns out the lie that we are more secure, that we are more happy, that we are better off in our isolation. Spirit, will you drive us out of the closets that we seek to lock ourselves in, of isolation, of self-protection, of being alone, as if somehow we are better off that way. Lord, will you kick that door in and invite us into the beautiful community of the body of Christ? a community that is meant to thrive together in grace, to love one another, in which we love and are loved, know and are known, and grow in our shared experience of the resurrection of Christ. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.